we're all learners, natural learners, right? And we're learning all the time. And I think instruction is not the only way to learn, right? And I think many of our systems are based on instruction, instructional manuals or a professor being right in front of you. And I think we definitely need to take advantage of that natural ability to learn that we all have and uh, to support autonomy. Today, we're actually joined by one of our previous, uh, well, friends of one of our previous guests to the show. And she said that she had this most amazing co-founder and, and just, you know, spouted off of how wonderful this woman is. And so we're excited to talk to Ta Corrales. Uh, uh, welcome to the show, Ta. Thank you so much, Brandon. Thank you for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah. As, as I sometimes make the mistake, uh, um, am I pronouncing or pronouncing your last name correctly? Is it Corrales or? Corrales, yeah. Corrales, yeah. okay. <laughs> I had a previous guest. His name was, uh, and, I, and I always screw it up, uh, Lasaro or L Lasaro. Uh, and I can't, to this day, <laughs> pronounce <Lasaro>. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's hard with, with. For example, the double R in my yes. in my last name. Yeah, yeah, so no problem at all. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for being understanding. Like Asian names sometimes even, and that's why I'm very forgiving when people might make a mistake with like my ethnic name. All right. Well, um, Liz, you know, you and your Liz and your co-founder, that is, and you built uh, this company called Smith Assembly, and, and she she talked about it a little bit. But can you remind our listeners what, what Smith Assembly is and, and uh, maybe some exciting news that you might have had in the last month or so? Yeah, of course. Uh what we do at Smith Assembly is wonderful team building and leadership development experiences. Uh, right now we're going virtual. We actually started out with a with hands-on workshops. And this year we're releasing our first virtual workshop. And we work with innovators from around the world to co-design these experiences. So it's a wonderful uh, one and a half to three hour event that you know teaches you cross-cultural. Uh, abilities and skills. You get to do some hands-on exercises and you get to bond with your colleagues. So that's awesome. what we do. Awesome. So what, what inspired you both to, to build this? That's one of the most wonderful parts of the story. Liz and I met in Botswana. Um, as I'm sure she has mentioned, uh, you know, we started we a great friendship since, since then. And where we met was a, an international design summit. And so those are these experiences that are two weeks to one month long, where you work in teams from with people from around the world to come up with solutions to a design challenge, a local design challenge. And that was actually what inspired us. Uh, there are so many people around the world who are innovators in their own communities, who are you know pushing forward wonderful innovative projects. And we really wanted to work with them to get out there their stories and the ways in which they are building more equitable and more just communities themselves. And so that's how and why we, we came up with this idea. Mm -hmm. So, so it's basically a social venture. Am I correct? Uh, you know, yes, absolutely. We are very impact driven and, uh, you know, a big part of our purpose and the reason why we exist is to, yeah, like bring, bring these stories, uh, bring more light to this story so that more people can get to know these stories of innovation from around the world. We also support uh, nonprofits that are associated with the innovators we work with. And so, for example, for this first workshop that we have this 2021, 20, uh, we are working with Enocan Estrella, who are innovators from Oaxaca, Mexico, and we're going to be supporting their nonprofit vaccine. Yeah. Wow, wow. So you guys are very international. Uh, I mean, you started off in Botswana, uh, you know, you know, getting to know each other. And then obviously your background. So you're, you're Costa Rican. Is that is that correct? Or? Yes, I am Costa Rican, born and raised in Costa Rica. Right now I'm here in Irelia, in the mountains of Irelia. Oh, okay. Okay. So you're down actually in Latin America right now. Okay. I was, I was thinking yes. you're in, in Vancouver with Liz, but, uh, uh <laughs> but, but okay. So you guys are uh, distance, uh, working, I guess, if you want to call it right. Yeah. 
our plan, well, our plan was to be working together in Vancouver. The company is a Vancouver-based company, but because of the pandemic, right. things changed. And so, yeah, I've been here for the past almost a year. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Has it been pretty, I guess, I mean, you guys are going virtual. So uh, you probably learned a lot through this whole process. I, I assume that there's been probably some challenges that have, you know, arisen. And then also you probably learned a lot to, to be more efficient or effective. Uh, can you can you talk about maybe any of those little issues or bigger issues that you've experienced? Well, we started out uh, with this idea of doing hands-on workshops. And so because of the pandemic, that wasn't possible anymore. And that's why we we made this huge pivot to virtual experiences. For me, that was a very big difference uh, for the past, you know, I think since I'm a teenager, basically, I've been doing, I love education, which is one of the reasons why I'm very happy to be here. Uh, and so I've been doing and facilitating workshops that are in person, on site. Uh, the one in Botswana was one of them. Uh, I worked in Latin America in over a dozen countries too, doing hands-on work, et cetera. And so this shift towards, you know, being in front of the computer like I am right now, or and just collaborating virtually was huge, but we've make it we've made it work. And yeah, yeah. I think that's where we see ourselves for the next six months at least. And you, you, you came from MIT, and so I assume that there's probably a lot of MIT grads and, and some of your alum that have died, you know, dove right into the education space and maybe, you know, have spread uh, uh, some of the, uh, I've seen several projects out of MIT, you know, related to education. Were, were any of those kind of pieces, you know, thrown at you guys, or did you get to leverage some of the learnings from, you know, your past experiences? Yes, absolutely. Um, since since I was an undergrad, I I have collaborated with D Lab, which is a lab at MIT that does a lot of uh, sustainable development. Mm. That's community based around the world, mm. and uh, this summit, the summit where Liz and I met, actually was part of their International Development Innovation Network, a nice. network that they founded with innovators from around the world uh, to push forward this idea that, you know, there are ways to solve your own problems through mm -hmm. technology mm -hmm. at the local level. So a lot of grassroots innovation. And yeah, uh, actually the innovators we collaborate with belong to this network and are typically associated with, with MIT D-Lab as well. So, you know, that's been a, a very big part of, of what we do. Mm -hmm. And you spent a bit of time, from what I could see, I think over five years at the D-Lab. Could you tell us a little bit about the, the D-Lab, just, I mean, for, for those listeners who don't know anything about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, D-Lab is a lab at MIT. Uh, they do, they have classes. So you can take classes where you basically take on um, challenges from different places around the world and you apply your engineering and science skills to them. So for students, it's a very particular experience because often uh, they have an international component to these challenges. They get to travel uh, to the communities where the challenges are at. So an example can be, for example, um, wheelchairs. Hmm. Can you create a kit to adapt wheelchairs to hemiplegic users, which are people who can't use one side of their body. And so you you work on these challenges in contexts that are typically vulnerable, uh, economically, with a lot of economic uh, burden and poverty. So uh, yeah, that's what D-Lab does. And there's also a lot of research that that is being done uh, associated also with the challenges that come with people who live in poverty. And also, um, well, there's, I said academics, there's uh, research, and there's also an area of innovation practice, which is basically projects that uh, happen in the communities themselves that uh, with people like the innovators we work with to push forward uh, sustainable development projects. 
That, no, that sounds really fun. I wish uh, I had an opportunity to experience something like that growing up. <laughs> um, so now, so you spent a lot of your life, uh, I guess, in and around MIT, right? So, I mean, how, how did that become a part of your life? I mean, you grew up in Costa Rica, right? And so um, did you know about MIT growing up or did it just kind of happen to, you know, end up being, you know, accidentally thrown in front of you or, or tell us a little bit about, you know, your, your interests and then eventual, I guess, you know, jumping into that great school. Of course. Yeah. Um, well, I always liked science and math and technology. I think since I was a kid, I was, you know, basically a nerd and <laughs> I, in high school, I joined what is called the scientific high school. So that is part of the public system. It's, type, it's kind of like a special type of high school mm -hmm. that we have here in Costa Rica that has a lot of curriculum that's, uh, that focuses, focuses on, on science and engineering. And um, I joined that high school and then I started uh, competing in chemistry Olympiads. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually made it quite far. I, I made it, I competed internationally twice in the in the international chemistry olympiads and once in mexico in the latin american once representing mm -hmm. my country uh this is when i was you know i was 15 uh 13 16 years old <laughs> and in one of those events uh i remember i had this chat with someone uh from korea who told me that they were applying to universities in the u.s and abroad and that had never occurred to me. I always thought that I would go to university here in Costa Rica. And huh, I, I found it interesting. So when I went back home, I started doing some research. And I loved MIT because of, you know, all the reasons. Uh, because they had done a lot of really great stuff. And uh, I applied. Uh, it was a very unusual type of application, I would say. Uh, I found out about this in... July or August of the year, the same year, you know, that you had to apply to. I had never heard of SATs before. Uh, I'd never heard of really anything because our processes for applying for a university here are very different. And so in like four months and by myself, I I put together an application and and, and applied and well, it, it went through, but I, I actually only applied to MIT. I didn't apply to any of the other colleges. This was, you know, I had very little experience with, with, with this process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's amazing. Um, did you, did you have a backup plan just in case uh, MIT said no? Absolutely. Yes. I, I, I was going to go to University of Costa Rica, okay. which is the, you know, our, one of the best universities here and the university where I trained uh, to do Olympiads, etc. So yeah, that was that was the plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, tell us a little bit about the Costa Rican, you know, uh, education system because you know, for a lot of Americans, I assume. I mean, interesting enough, our listener uh, base is actually international. I think Australia is one of our uh, larger, um, you know, groups of listeners outside of the United States, but. Um, you know, tell us a little bit, I mean, you know, obviously you didn't go to an American public school or maybe even a magnet or whatever, but, um, I imagine you probably had discussions with other people who went to school in the States. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the differences? Are, are there strengths or there weaknesses that you, 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 you had heard about or, or were exposed when you went to MIT? Yeah. Um, well, our, our system here is relatively similar to, to the system in the U.S. at least. Well, it, it's got its differences. We have basically, um, we have the public system and, and the private system, which are typically the same. We have six years of elementary school, and then we have what we call high school. Middle school and high school here are basically the same thing. And... Um, there's a few variations, you know, we've got technical schools and we've got scientific high schools, like the one I attended. And there's a couple variations, but it's basically the same. It's a relatively rigid system in the sense that, for example, many of my friends in the U.S., they got to choose 
which level of math or which level or, or which subjects they would learn. And we don't, we actually have a fixed uh, curriculum that everybody does. It's basically the same for everybody. And for me, if anything, that's actually not a strength, I would say that's a weakness. I, I think that um, one of the really unique things I believe about my elementary school experience was that I was actually in a school, a private school that my mother founded. And that was a very flexible, provided a very flexible alternative to people who would otherwise not be a good fit for, for the traditional system. And so I think that uh, that flexibility and in many ways that customization of your own educational experience made it possible for me to develop many skills and, and, and really a lot of the drive and love for education that I don't think I would have had if I had attended a, a regular or, or traditional school. Mm -hmm. wow. wow. So you're the daughter of a pioneer then. So your mother went out and built a school um, that, that allowed you, which is wonderful, um, the opportunity to kind of learn in a different way. Is that the case? Yeah. 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 And it was, it was part of a cooperative. It was a group of women who got together and they were all from a, a, a context that didn't have many options uh, for many of them had children who had physical disability or uh, cognitive disabilities. And, and they just didn't, you know, they didn't see an option that would be a good fit for them. So they came together and created this, this project. Uh, at, that was a school. It had preschool and then elementary school. And that's where, uh, yeah, that's where I, I, I went to, I went to school and I honestly, I'm just very thankful, I think, to my mother and to uh, having that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And are there more schools like that or is it still relatively unique as, as a type of school in Costa Rica? Nowadays, I think there are, there are more options that offer, you know, different types of, of learning systems. Uh, back then it wasn't that common. Mm -hmm. I think that, yeah, I think more and more we're seeing different types of, of, of for example, on schooling or, you know, just different options for people who might not be a, a good fit for the traditional system. Mm -hmm. right, no, I, I've heard a lot of great things about Costa Rica. I have not been there and I'm, I'm excited to hopefully visit at some point in my life. But um, do you feel like uh, Costa Rica um, is on the, the, the cutting edge on, on the leading, you know, um, uh, you know, in terms of like, you know, just education or, or other areas uh, versus other Latin American countries or somewhere in the middle? Is it somewhere? Is it lagging? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, um, so I am. I wouldn't say on the cutting edge uh, in terms of, I guess, um, cutting edge technology or methodologies, because I think our system has been pretty similar for decades, uh, even centuries, arguably at this point. And I think that's the case in many countries. But we do have a very, very um, unique situation, and that is that. Uh, when the, when the military was abolished, eh, and that was um, approximately 100 years ago, <laughs> and then a lot of that budget was used for education. Mm -hmm. And so our yeah. numbers for um, literacy, among others, are very good in comparison to some other countries in the region. Uh, and that's because a lot of schools were built back, back then. And a lot of people were, were able to attend schools in rural areas and, and in other conditions. So in that sense, I think uh, we have, yeah, we have a, we're very lucky, but then in many other ways, we suffer from, from the same pains as other countries, right? So for example, um, we have uh, a system that is that traditional educational system that hasn't changed in so long and, and all of the challenges that come with that. And yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, one, one thing I'm curious, uh, and I haven't dove in yet, is um, how is the technology, uh, like even bandwidth and internet and, and things like that, because obviously having the internet available gives you better access. So that, that I mean, 
I knew about OCW, Open Courseware at MIT since 2001. So, and their goal was obviously to make sure that the rest of the world had the same curricula or same opportunities as, as students who were in, you know, uh, I can't remember if MIT's in Cambridge or in Boston, but anyway, but you know, those resources, um, is the bandwidth strong? Is it on the weaker end? I'm curious. Yeah. Um, I think, well, depends on where you're at. I think if you're here, I'm in the central Valley and this is where, where our biggest city, if you, you could say is at. Mm. we have, I think good bandwidth here because of, uh, Costa Rica has actually a very growing um, software services economy. Mm. So for example, companies like Amazon are have a lot of their call centers here. And there's a lot of, of services that, that are being um, offered, especially to US companies from here. Uh, but in, in other areas outside of the Central Valley, there's still a lot of... Uh, challenges with access to the internet and even within here right there are certain communities that don't have as much access and that that have that see a big gap and i think now that has been with the pandemic we have seen an increasing gap in in access to internet and in access to education really because mm. education depends on the internet for many people yeah mm -hmm. definitely definitely um, now I was kind of curious and maybe we can talk a little bit about the startup and then we'll come back to education. Um, you know, it's just you and Liz, I think at this point, right. Um, with, with Smith assembly, yeah. but at some point, let's say you get really, really, you know, popular and, and you have to do so many of these and then, you know, it just expands. Um, do you consider maybe hiring within the Costa Rican, you know, um, you know, pool talent pool? Is that a possibility? Because I'm kind of curious. I mean, I assume one of the reasons why Amazon's doing their call centers is probably cost reasons, right? Or, or you know, because there's also good talent potentially, right? So is, is that an option, just out of curiosity? Yes, we have actually uh, collaborated with contractors from here who, who I knew from, mm -hmm. from before. Uh, and yes, I think that's definitely an option. I think it'll, it'll depend on what we're looking for and, and et cetera, but there's definitely a lot of, a lot of talent here. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, especially in this, in software and in tech, I think it's a, it's a growing, uh, sector and that the government even is, is really trying to push forward. Right. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Is the government involved quite a bit in, in the, the pushing forward of, of not just the economy, but maybe, you know, opportunities in, you know, the economy, but also with education. So, I mean, it, that's interesting to hear that they literally diverted the defense fund to education. That, that's like unheard of here in the United States, right? So, um, you know, is the government still kind of thinking in those ways? Yes, I think there are definitely uh, incentives that the government provides for um, tech companies to, to do business here. Um, I think even in the in, ed, in the educational area, they founded a an institute of technology, which is the Costa Rican Institute of Technology. That uh, they focus a lot on the type of careers that would service that sector. So you know, there's a lot of right now people who are doing UX design or people who are doing software or a lot of stuff that 20 years ago didn't exist. We only had like the more traditional pathways in, in education. And so, yeah, I think there's definitely, there's definitely incentives for, for that sector to grow. And actually a lot of my friends here work in that sector, you know, and, and provide services to worldwide companies in, in the sector. So it is really interesting. Um, and there's also a big push for English uh, to be spoken a a reasonable amount of Costa Ricans speak English, both because of tourism, but because of this growing uh, sector as well. Mm -hmm. Wow, wow. No, I asked because, um, I mean, I'm not native Korean, but my blood is Korean. And, and so I spent a bit of time in Korea and I learned, uh, you know, kind of, and I've always been curious, like how did the country advance as, as fast as it has? 
And it mm -hmm. was the government who stepped in and it was the government who, you know, even though it was not necessarily good in the eighties and maybe even early nineties, um, you know, it was more authoritarian, but, um, but still because of those efforts, the infrastructure was built and, and because of the infrastructure, I think they had an advantage, whereas some other countries might still have that uh, handicap or, or disadvantage. And so it's very interesting to, to hear, you know, um, that Costa Rica is, is doing similar things. Well, let's say you are hiring, um, you know, out of Costa Rica is, is, are there certain strengths of, of maybe folks that come from the talent pool that there? Are there certain things that you think could improve? Um, you know, maybe the education system could change a little bit. I mean, are there things that you would say that could uh, be bettered, I guess? Yeah, um, well, I think in terms of strengths, uh, Liz and I always talk about, you know, how important it is to, to have a diverse team. And I think that just bringing in people that think differently uh, is going to is always going to be a, a strength. And then in terms of, uh, I guess, challenges, for me, one of the biggest challenges that, that we have, uh, I think, is the lack of an entrepreneurship mindset, I would say. I believe that Costa Ricans are very risk adverse, and we don't like risks, and we want to go safe. And I think that's a huge, huge uh, challenge, especially for, for my generation, you know, because uh, I think we are currently in a position where many people have a lot of skills and talents that they could put uh, and they could use to strengthen the economy, to create more companies, uh, to create more jobs too. But we have that, we have that issue. And I think that's, you know, that's a cultural thing, uh, but also part of, I guess, part of the education, I think often, um, supports this idea of being an employee, but doesn't support as much the idea of, of being an entrepreneur. So I think that's a, a something, you know, a big challenge that I would love to, to tackle. <laughs> well, well, so what, maybe, maybe we can talk about that a little bit more. So what made you want to take those chances, right? What, what made you less risk averse uh, than maybe some of your compatriots in, in Costa Rica? Or what do you think? Aha, that's a, that's a challenging question right there. Um, <laughs> I, well, you know, I think being at MIT was a, was a very big uh, eye-opening experience for me. I think just being in a, in an environment that has so many resources that has so much talent was, uh, was a huge difference because I think that when seeing that and when experiencing that, you start to feel more comfortable in, you know, with your own talents and with your own skills. And also just being surrounded by so many people who are super passionate about what they do, I think allows you to also grow passion and confidence in what you do. So I think that was a big part of it for me uh, to be able to be exposed to that environment and then say, yes, maybe, maybe I could do it too even though, you know, I, I still have my moments, right? Sometimes I wonder, uh, if, what are the challenges? Are we going to succeed? What can I do to improve? You know, we, we're still on the edge as any startup, I, I would say, uh, yeah. all the time. But yeah. <laughs> so then it sounds like more experiences uh, would be nice to help people understand the possibilities uh, is, is one thing that you would like to see. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, but let, let me ask you in that same vein. Um, I mean, not a lot of people get that chance to go to MIT, right? But uh, uh, it, it, are there other schools? Should we send, you know, maybe some of your, your, your peers to like Carnegie Mellon or, or, you know, maybe Harvey Mudd or some of the other, other schools? I mean, how many, how many of you, let's say your class actually went to the United States out of curiosity? Uh, for undergrad, uh, nobody, oh. um, just me. <laughs> wow. So definitely the trend center. <laughs> yeah, there are limitations to, to that, but I think maybe just experiencing other contexts, having international experiences, just seeing a different reality, I think, um, is very helpful. When you find yourself 
in a different environment, I think that allows you to uh, recreate the image that you had of yourself. And with that, you are having to create again, you know, what is possible for you. And I think that just, just putting yourself in that, in that, in that context and in that situation is helpful and is really valuable. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, let's say someone said to you, okay, uh, Todd, I'm going to give you uh, $10 million. I want you to build the ultimate school here in Costa Rica. Uh, and, and you're going to be the one who helps us decide what kind of resources and what kind of curriculum we put together. Obviously, we're not going to plan this all out here in this podcast, but, uh, but, but, but at the same time, are there certain things that you remember through your educational experiences, maybe at MIT, maybe at you know, your, your high school or, or even before, maybe even your mom, that you might apply um, or, or change with your current system? That's a great question, too. Um, I think very recently I've been thinking a lot about autonomy and agency. So we're all learners, natural learners, right? And we're learning all the time. And I think instruction is not the only way to learn, right? And I think many of our systems are based on instruction, instructional manuals or a professor being right in front of you. And I think we definitely need to take advantage of that natural ability to learn that we all have and uh, to support autonomy and to support uh, what it is that that individual wants to learn and what it is to support that indiv individual's decisions and et cetera. So I recently uh, met something called uh, the Agile Learning Centers Network. And a lot of these ideas and thoughts uh, have been things that I've had the opportunity to discuss with them. But I think that would definitely be, be something that I would try to uh, implement, just giving the learner the freedom to decide and make their own decisions on what they wanna learn and how they wanna learn it and for what. Because I think, and this is something I was talking to my sister recently, my sister just started university. You, you get to school when, when you're finally starting out um, college and many people don't know what they wanna do. And that is because we are often told what we have to learn, but we don't often choose what we want to learn. And so just giving people those opportunities to choose what it is that they want to do and they want to learn and giving them the freedom to do so, I think would be a huge, um, a huge strength to an educational system. Mm -hmm. did, did you have any of those kind of experiences in Costa Rica where, where teachers were a little bit more, I guess, on that liberal side, maybe a little bit more open-minded uh, because it sounds like most of them were, you know, very much like, this is what you need to do, but maybe a few that were on the edge or cutting edge. Um, did you have any of those kind of experiences? Yeah, I think in elementary school, when I was in, in, when I was part of, uh, the school that my mom founded, I, I did have a lot more of freedom. Um, we were part of a traditional system, but um, I often had like free time and where I was allowed to, you know, explore and do what it is that I that I wanted to do. And I think that was really helpful. I think there's a there's a balance, right? I think we need standardization for many things, but we also uh, want and need customization for for the different types of learners. Mm -hmm. Um, were there any teachers that inspired you that you can think of or that you can recall back? I mean, maybe it was your mom <laughs> because she was the one who created the, the school itself. But um, do you have any teachers? I know when I think back, I have a few that I could think of that I say, OK, that person really had a big heart. And, you know, and that's why they jumped into education and, you know, did their best to help us, even if the system wasn't the best. Do you have any that you can remember? Yeah, uh, I remember um, my, I had a, I had a professor that, or teacher that uh, did programming. We learned how to uh, code using C uh, when I was in, when I was in high school, in the scientific high school. Mm -hmm. And uh, her name was Alejandra. And Alejandra was a mechanical engineer. Mm. And um I very much remember that, you know, I didn't often see in in in, in my context uh, 
women who were engineers and especially not women who did mechanical engineering. And so, yeah, I think that was a big, I guess you could say a role model for me. I don't think I saw it that way at that time, mm. but, uh, but now looking back, I think that, you know, that was a big eye opener saying, you know, this could be possible. This, this could be possible for me too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You did end up going and majoring in mechanical engineering, correct? Yes. Yes. What I did was uh, mechanical engineering. Mm -hmm. And, and wh why did you choose that? Just out of curiosity as well. Yeah. Um, I actually, I, I think I fell in love with machines in, in, in an experience that I had with D-Lab, this lab at MIT that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. We did um, work in Tanzania and uh, at that time, I was a I was a freshman, and I was thinking of doing chemistry since you know I went to chemistry Olympiads and everything. But then we worked on a project for designing and building a multi-crop thrasher for rice and sorghum, etc. And yeah, I, I kind of fell in love with machines and what with what they could do for people. So yeah, I, I decided to major in mechanical engineering after that. <laughs> <laughs> and then after the mechanical engineering degree and obviously spent some time in D lab, but now you're doing product, uh, management, uh, or, or product management design, right? So with, with assembly and stuff, are you able to apply some of those, uh, things that you did learn or the concepts and, and, you know, um, ideas that basically you got from the degree? Yes. Yes. I think so. I think in general that the general problem solving and like, um, I guess systems thinking that that you need to develop for being an engineer is something that I use often. In terms of specific skills, you know, I I don't think I've ever used my skills in I don't know fluid dynamics. <laughs> I can't remember ones that I have you know differential equations since I graduated, but you know, just the general mindsets I I do think stay. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Uh, you know, a lot of the college and, and previous schooling that, that I've had, I, I don't use a single bit of any of it, but you're right. The, the, <laughs> the environment and, and the challenges and things like that. I, I'm, I'm wondering too, um, was MIT really difficult? I mean, this is supposed to be the best technical university in the United States, if not the world. Was it, was it really hard? I mean, I know you're excited probably going there, but then, you know, then you're surrounded by all these, you know, huge, huge, you know, whatevers and, 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 uh, or was it easier than you might've uh, thought it would have been? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. I think it was, it was harder than I expected, but in the, in the areas that I didn't expect. So I, I expected a lot of rigor, academic rigor, and I actually think I experienced at least in like calculus and, and other uh, more technical uh, areas like that, more rigor in, in the University of Costa Rica courses I took when I was in high school, because mm. we did a lot of work. And instead, I think it became harder, but in other things. So for example, for me, it was really hard to juggle, I guess. the. Sometimes people say that MIT is like a fire hose, right? There's so much stuff going on. There are so many opportunities happening. And then how do you choose? How do you, how do you know what to do? What's the right thing to do when there are so many things out there? Uh, that was very big. Then another, another big thing for me was that I loved research. And then I often would spend until very late at night in, in a research lab. Um, and then I would forget that I had homework to do and that I needed to do that homework and you know so I guess it was a lot of it was hard in terms of time management it was hard in terms of uh a lot more like soft skills that I didn't expect uh in in the harder the more technical stuff I think it was yeah it was it was I mean don't get me wrong it was still a little bit hard technically yeah, too yeah, but the harder part was was the, another area <laughs> yeah yeah, I've, I've actually heard that quite a bit from my friends who went to like Stanford, for example. Uh, they, they had actually said the, the, the soft skills sometimes were the ones that they wish the university would help teach. 
And, and, and frankly, even my parents, um, you know, had complained when I was, you know, after I'd graduated from college, they were like, didn't they teach you that at school? Um, and, and I was like, looking back at them thinking, no, they didn't teach that at all. So, you know, um, so that does seem like one of the weaknesses in, in university. W were there any other things? I mean, like budgeting, w w what else do you feel like maybe college could have taught you a little bit better to help prepare you for, for the real world? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think in general, just soft skills. I think, you know, we are very young and, and I don't think I understood the value of soft skills, uh, especially for later on in your career. For example, I, I would have loved to understand really how important it was to um, network, <laughs> right? Like that's something that, you know, even now I think a lot of people, uh, we're all still learning, right? And then um, I guess just regular like professional development uh, skills, you know, like how to find your first job, uh, how to go about job searching or how to go about internship searching. I think there are a lot of resources that, that universities have uh, that maybe we don't take advantage of, but also, um, you know, it depends on, on your skill level. For example, myself, nobody in my family had ever gone to university or um, and, and definitely not university in the United States. And mm -hmm. so navigating that it was, was a challenge in the sense that I had very few references and that I had very few, um, I guess, anecdotic, anecdotal uh, references for that. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to ask maybe hopefully two more questions before we jump into the five cues. But one of them I, I didn't even think about um, until just a little while ago. But English is not your first language. Am I correct? No. <laughs> <laughs> so here we are. Yeah, here we are interviewing you in your non-native language, and and we can't tell. Uh, and 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 you know yet. It is, I mean, so you're obviously much more comfortable, I assume, in Spanish, right? Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> I, absolutely. I speak Spanish. I actually never, uh, that's part of, of, that's one answer to the challenges while going to MIT question, because the first time I ever experienced education in a different language was my freshman year at MIT. Oh, and, wow. Uh, I didn't go to a bilingual high school. There are a lot of bilingual high schools here where you actually get that experience of, of doing school in a different language, but I hadn't. So that was definitely a big challenge. I, you know, I never spoke anything but Spanish at home and, and in school, et cetera. So that was also a big part of, of getting acquainted with uh, the system, the country, the new cultural norms. Um, I remember that my freshman advisor I tried to say hi to her by like giving her a kiss on the cheek because that's how we typically uh, greet here in, in Costa Rica. And I remember her being, you know, very nervous about this move I had just tried to do. And, you know, it was, yeah, it was a, it was a very, it was a different cultural experience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that's funny. <laughs> I can imagine how she would be like, what are you doing? <laughs> exactly. What are you trying to do? <laughs> oh, that's that's interesting first uh, yeah, interaction. Um, no, I mean, I, I can't believe I didn't think about that, but that's because you just seem so natural now that I wouldn't even think of it. Um, but wow, that that I mean, not only did you have to go to one of the tough toughest schools in, in, the, in the country, if not the world, but it's, it's not even in a language that you're, you're necessarily comfortable in. So um, kudos to you. Um, well, um, maybe just one or two more questions um, about education. I'd love to just kind of get your, your thoughts. Um, you know, I, I'd already asked, like, what would you do if you built a, a school from the ground up and, and, you know, you talked about autonomy and uh, perhaps uh, maybe giving people more of a chance um, to, to, you know, um, do things on their own or, or choose on their own. Um, 
can I ask uh, now, let's say now that you are in your position, you know, you're doing a startup or maybe later down the road, you become very successful in one way or the other, or, you know, maybe, maybe money isn't flowing out of your pockets or out of your bank account. Um, do you feel like education uh, is, is going to be a priority in your life and how you change it or, or what you might be able to do. Uh, you know, it's, it's really cool to hear the story about your mom. I mean, she, she went out and just, you know, built the school so that, that that's incredibly impressive, but how about you? Like for, for the rest of the, you know, uh, listening audience, I'm kind of curious because um, it is tough. You know, we we're trying to put food on the table all the time. Right. And, and we're, we're, we're like you said, the majority isn't even, uh, you know, going to take risks because they're probably thinking about that a lot. Um, but, but moving forward, how do you think you might be able to make a difference or is it in your mind or, or what, what are your candid thoughts? Sorry for that long-winded question, but um, just want to get your, your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, no, I, I believe that I'm always going to be doing stuff related to education for the rest of my life. I somehow always end up doing stuff that is related to either curriculum development or um, facilitation or instruction. You know, it's something that I, I've always been surrounded by and I enjoy quite a bit, probably because of my family. Uh, my grandma does the same thing. Uh, my mom does education too. And, and yeah, I definitely want to be involved with it. Uh, one of the big questions I have and this is maybe a question that I have for later. Uh, I, I, I currently don't have enough time to solve this, but uh, later is how can we take advantage of uh, international ecos ecosystems and technology, and especially in the Latin American region um, and really in the Americas too, where we have uh, a lot of um, similar experiences how can we connect those and how can we look at systems that are more international and more regional rather than so local and so uh yeah i think that that would be that would be a really great uh question to explore i know one project right now which is uh focusing on for example connecting the challenges of rural communities in colombia with universities in Colombia, so that the uh, projects that the universities that the university students solve in their classes are actually helping somebody in those communities. So it's basically a platform that uses uh, a little bit of AI to learn, you know, what's a good match in between a student group and a project in a in a rural community, and how can they match those? And that provides an opportunity for connecting, you know, uh, an, eco an innovation ecosystem that is, you know, very far apart in, in distance, but that might actually work. So um, that's called the Retos platform. Um, but, you know, things like that, how can we connect beyond borders? And how can we do that in the educational space is something that I would love to explore but that's a question for later. <laughs> well, well, we'll keep keep that in your back burner because um, I'll be honest, you know, and I haven't told a lot of people the secret behind the podcast, but the podcast is to actually explore um, ideas for maybe a later startup and or another organization or something to, to build later on after listening to everybody's thoughts about the subject. Um, actually, uh, on that exact point that you just made, I thought of uh, more than 20 years ago, actually, a thing called Synthesis Foundation. And the goal was to create a nonprofit, actually, uh, to integrate or find ways of getting the best of every culture and then putting it together and solving problems. So very similar to what you, you're actually describing. Um, and so we'll, we'll have to talk more after the podcast, maybe in the future. But, but uh, no, I love how you're thinking. Um, and I think uh, your thoughts, um, you know, and obviously Liz is absolutely amazing. Um, you know, that kind of stuff will help our society improve. Um, not making the next dollar, um, but rather trying to find the beauty in each of these cultures that we have and, and, and finding ways of matching and mixing it and, and, you know, hopefully generating some of the best 
best solutions that maybe society will ever see. So that, that's beautiful that you said that. So uh, thank you for sharing that. All right. So unfortunately, you have to get back to work and I have to get back to my day. So we're gonna, I'm going to ask you just some uh, last questions that we always ask we'll called the five Q's. And so um, the first question actually, uh, uh, you know, is, is a question that is related to the second, but I think sometimes they're mutually exclusive. So let me ask real quickly, who's your hero? I, I, I have a, I have a thought or, or, or feeling I know who it is, but I don't know, maybe it's between two people, but, but can you tell us who is your hero? Oh, I, ha I have a lot of heroes, but uh, I think my hero is my grandmother, my grandmother. She is, she is, had a life, she's lived a life fighting for social justice in my country and especially for gender equity. And uh, yeah, she has always been my hero because of that. Can, can, can you tell us a little bit about her? I'm, I'm really curious. Yes, uh, so well, her name is Marta and uh, but she has, she has lived a life, you know, fighting for workers' rights. She started out uh, in a banana plantation fighting for workers' rights and is a banana plantation worker. And then uh, she started organizing women uh, in cooperatives with a cooperative movement to create more opportunities for economic empowerment. And so, uh, you know, she runs a very large cooperative of women that uh, basically through microloans are able to grow their businesses and get out of, uh, often, you know, poverty and violence cycles. Mm -hmm. That's wonderful. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah, I, I was right. It was either your grandmother or your mother who was, I, I was predicting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. The second question is similar and maybe, you know, we, you can mix in, um, but but regardless, uh, who's a good role model or, or maybe even you can select several. Um, who are good role models for society today? Yeah. Oh, wow, this is a hard question. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, one of the first things that comes to my mind um, is I've been thinking a lot about Greta lately, because I think that there's a lot of action that we need to take uh, to protect our planet. And I think that uh, doing, yeah, just doing work around that is something that we all need to be thinking about. And yeah, and, and it doesn't, I think this goes beyond our, our situation. You know, we don't need to be older to think about these challenges. We don't need to be a certain age or a certain uh, ethnicity or, or come from a certain country. I think it's, it's something that we all as humans need to think about. Mm -hmm. Makes sense, makes sense. I mean, in, in Costa Rica, actually, if I'm correct, uh, is there deforestation and other kind of environmental issues that are occurring right now? Yeah, so, you know, we have, a, we have, uh, we are living consequences of, of global warming, I think, especially in, in coastal communities. There's a big push for, uh, in our country, for being carbon neutral in 2030. And so there's a lot of also initiatives to, to push for that. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I was just uh, wondering. Um, so this third question, um, I typically find uh, have some interesting answers. And so we usually aggregate the answer uh, from this question into other episodes. And, and when you spoke about the, you know, time that you, you, you went to MIT, you didn't even know English that well, right? Um, so it must have been very challenging. Um, and then there was probably nights where you, you described also like, uh, I didn't even do my homework. And so, you know, uh, which must have been stressful. Um, and then even today, while you guys are building Smith Assembly, sometimes, you know, extra questions pop into your head. And so we have a lot of stressful, you know, times in life, but getting through those is not easy. And, and from your perspective, what, can I ask, what have you done that maybe has helped you get through those times? Yeah, that's a great question. I think um, I've started, I am starting to learn that I think we need to prioritize mental health over work. Uh, and that is, um, 
you know, sometimes we push ourselves too hard. I'm definitely guilty of that, uh, of prioritizing work over health, over mental health, physical health, over family and, and many things. And I think that, uh, well, for me, my family has really helped. Uh, my family is a big, is a big support system uh, for me and just understanding to help me remember that I am beyond my work and that I am beyond uh, my schooling or, or, or these accomplishments, you know, that we are not defined by those, that they are a part of us, I think has been really helpful for me to, you know, understand that we are all uh, complex humans beyond beyond our accomplishments and beyond our work. And, and you know, it's a journey. I think uh, me and my friends, we often talk about this. It's a journey. Sometimes it's hard to detach yourself from those things and to give yourself space for exercising or eating better, etc. But yeah, just uh, sitting down for me, uh, reflecting on who I am, uh, and reflecting on my value beyond those those areas really helps me kind of stay centered and and, and not push myself too hard, which is often uh, a problem I have. <laughs> yeah. Totally understand. <laughs> awesome, thank you. Uh, hopefully these last two questions are a little bit easier. Uh, sometimes I don't know why, but people do feel it's complicated. But uh, so the fourth question I, I just ask is, is um, so is there a favorite food or dish that you love to enjoy like over and over and over? <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, we have in Costa Rica something called pastel de yuca, which is pastel translates to be pastry, but it's actually uh, salty, and it it uses cassava or yuca, which is this this root, um, and it's just wonderful. It has this wonderful texture. Uh, it's hard to explain. You need to you need to taste it to to understand. <laughs> but yes, I love uh, pastel de yuca. Mm -hmm. and, and how, how do you spell um, that root? Just in case anybody's curious. Yes, so uh, cassava. Uh, you know, C A S S A V A. Okay. If I'm not, if I'm correct, Got or it. yuca, which is Y U C A. Okay. Got it. Got it. Just in case we want to explore or, or, you know, try to recreate it ourselves. Awesome. I'll, I'll have to Google that afterwards. All right. Um, the last question, I actually uh, tripped over something when I was trying to do a little bit of homework for our, our podcast here today, but I, I, I'll let you answer it is, um, do you have any special, you know, facts about yourself or what's unique about TA? Um, you know, that you might be able to share with our, our listening audience that's, you know, just a little bit different uh, interests, whatever, you know, you want to share here today, but just, you know, a little extra flavor uh, to add to who you are. Yeah. Um, well, I, uh, one weird thing about myself is that I have, well, I used to be, I was a couple of years ago, a bachata dance uh, instructor. So I love Latin dances and I love dancing salsa and merengue and bachata and all sorts of things. And yeah, this morning actually I did some, I did an hour of salsation, which is this Latin dance too. So <laughs> yeah, really into the dancing. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. No, that, that is, I think the first, you, you're the first person who's talked about, I think that, so <laughs> that is definitely unique. So thank you so much. Well, well, it's been a sincere pleasure, uh, Ta, getting to know you here today and then our, our listening audience also as well. Um, one thing that I do like to offer our, our guests, though, just in case, because maybe someone would like to, to interview you, maybe they want to reach out for Smith Assembly or, um, you know, perhaps maybe they would love to learn mo more about Costa Rica. Um, so how do, how do people get in touch with you um, in case they want to follow up? Of course. Yeah. Um... Well, we, uh, if you want to learn more about Smith Assembly, you can check out our website at smithassembly.com. And also, I'm on social media as Takurais, so T-A-C-U-R-A-I-S. 
uh, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, et cetera. All right. So you're all over. So that's good to, to, to see in here. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, it's it's been such a sincere pleasure, uh, Ta. Thank you for your time here today. And uh, I'm glad that, that we could share a little bit more about you um, to the rest of the world. Thank you very much, Brendan. I feel very honored to be here. And Hey, it's Brandon, your host of Educate. We sincerely appreciate you spending some time listening to the show. Hopefully you've gained a little bit from the time with our guests. And if you have a moment, please feel free to leave a review, whether it be constructive criticism or another five-star review. We simply would be happy to hear from you. Oh, and if you don't mind subscribing, that's an additional bonus. We look forward to having you back here on Educate.